Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 99%. My name is Jesse Vodracek, and I have Marilyn with me. Hey, guys, Marilyn Chakota, and you guys can find everything with me at mcc.coach. Happy to be here today. And we have um, an amazing special guest today. He is the, um, the Ultraman champion. He was second in Ironman Canada with a blistering, what, 246 run? Yeah. And he's good. <laughs> Which uh, personally, I'm super impressed with that. That was before Super Shoes, and that that's um, yeah. I'm just, I'm striving to go 250 my under 250 myself, so I'm really impressed. So great job. There's and there's about 30 other things I could add to this intro, but Gordo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be here, Gordo. We go way back, and I feel like you've been a mentor in my life for. I mean, basically since what, like 2001? It's a long time, isn't it? I was pulling some pictures out the other day yeah. um, of that first trip we did together with Scott. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it goes goes way back. Way and, back. Uh, some good times and some good sessions too. Yeah. And you know, you've been a, not only an athletic mentor, but a business mentor, a life mentor, and I, I say to everyone that I meet, I wouldn't literally would not be where I am today had you not been in my life, you know, you and Scott, and you did a lot of things for me as sort of what I always consider like a big brother and a friend. And I've always been extremely grateful for that and never forget it and never forget where I came from. And so I'm so excited to have you on and get to ask you lots of questions that hopefully provide a little bit of an insight on, you know, we know each other fairly well, even though we've been out of touch a bit over the last, we said we need to have less than 10 year gaps between our conversations recently, but we did, we spent a lot of fun, like you say, fun times together and a lot of time training together and, and just through life stuff together. So, so really, really cool. Yeah. Well, I think the 10 year gap was sort of me falling off the face of the earth for a decade to hang out with the kids. <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm coming back. We might see each other a bit more. That's that's a good thing, though. You should spend ten years with your kids. <laughs> yeah, it was it was good time. Time well spent. Exactly. Um. So Jesse and I just finished the Tucson camp, which again, that's one of those things we were just saying that I inherited from you. I learned everything I know about running camps from from you, attending camps with you, getting the tools, the structure. We ran the endurance corner. Well, geez, we did camps, even me and you with Robbie all over yeah. the place, epic camps. And then, you know, Boulder camp and then the Tucson camp. And it had sort of an evolution of passing of the guard. And then I always laugh like I'm the last OG. It's just still, and I keep bringing new people in that I hope that you guys, I make you proud that are follow along, you know, the lines of what you grandfather down to me of this of Tucson camp still running strong Jesse and I just finished that you know we had a great group of athletes we continue to pass on the you know all of the the lessons that I've learned over the years and that that you passed down and and so really fun let's to touch on camps for a bit just for somebody <laughs> listening because <laughs> camps is if you if if an athlete's out there and they have ambitious goals a camp is such a great way to achieve a lot in a relatively small period of time. And Melina was always encouraging me to do camps. And this is really where the camps came from. 
was this goes like back to the 1980s and when he was training with Mark Allen and uh, Kenny Souza and uh, and his other training buddies is they would just do these point to point rides and they'd try, you know, they'd run off the bike and try and swim along the way. And they found it a really effective way to get a whole bunch of exercise done in a, in a, in a short period of time. And it didn't take any mental, it didn't take a whole lot of mental mojo. It was actually kind of lifting you up mentally to be in a new place, to strip away all the distractions. And that's how I used camps uh, in my own training, separate from the whole business thing. And that's really, as you know, you get yourself, you go point to point. So you know your destination, you got to just get there and you're not sort of out just doing loops close to home or, or kind of the same old thing. And you put yourself somewhere where you want to be, ideally with some nice weather and you just get a lot of work done. And we took the camps really extreme. So we, we took them out to 12 day camps where we were just burying ourselves and then we would be like ruined for like a week afterwards and the poor age groupers that came along, some of them were wrecked for like three weeks or something. Cause we, we got them a little too tired. So with camps, when I was, I was working, first, I was the first female. I was like, Oh God, here we go. <laughs> these guys eat a lot of peanut butter. <laughs> yeah. So the, so if you're in a, how I apply camps now is really driven by an athlete that I worked with a few years back who had a very busy schedule. And he's kind of like, yeah, I hear you, Gordo, but I can't take a week off. So let's just do like a long weekend camp. So it's three or four days of overload and you apply the camp principles, but you apply them in a short period of time. And I've been finding that that works really well for people. So if somebody's listening at home and they're like thinking, well, I don't have a week to go away. Well, you can get a lot done just with a long weekend and, you know, ride every day put two runs in and two swims and and you can give yourself a, a a big block of overload and that and that long stuff is something that might be missing from your normal week and from even your normal month or, or your whole season and you can get a lot done with volume overload as opposed to what a lot of people do which is intensity overload in a race and i've found that volume overload can be a very effective way regardless of your distance uh, to kind of lift your performance. And that's what I think the big lesson is with training camps. The other thing is for the experienced athletes that are doing training camps, judge your training camp on what happens after the camp, not during the camp. So, and what I mean there is if you're finding that the period after the camp to recover is as long as the training camp, your training camp's too big. So if it's a seven-day camp and you're a write-off for seven days, if you look at those 14 days as a whole, you probably overdid it. You'd be better off doing less in the training camp and bouncing back a little bit quicker. And so you're looking more for this, this overload that you can absorb as opposed to totally smashing yourself and then having to take a couple of weeks light. You don't want to be doing that. And that's something that we've, we, we found that back in the day, but we just didn't care about it at Epic Camp. We still just <laughs> smash ourselves.
You know, it's funny you say that. I actually have evolved the schedule quite a bit with the Tucson camp. You know, we used to do uh, Madeira Canyon, Kip Peak, and Lemon, which were, and a lot of other rides that were, it was a, you know, it was a huge schedule. It was like 35 hours that week. And it's evolved over time as I watched the athletes with exactly that. It was just taking them a little bit too long. They were out there a little too long uh, yeah. in terms of total time for how big those rides were in my mind. And, you know, at different speeds, right? Yeah. And then how long it was taking them to get over that week, I felt like was more than five days. My goal is always have people back to pretty normal training by the weekend and feeling more like themselves, like they wake up Friday morning, and they're like, oh, there I am. And so I tweaked the schedule over the years even though it's still over seven days based on that philosophy. Cause I've, you know, I've heard you, we've talked about that a lot, even in the past me, me you and Scott, where it's, you know, if you're doing even Cameron used to say, if you can't back it up, yeah. you can't, it takes you longer to recover from what you just did. It wasn't worth doing. So, mm -hmm. so I, um, that's actually something that I've applied over the last, I would say probably five years with the schedule, even in Tucson. Yeah. And I think that's, if, if we think about the physiology of, performance and the approach of the high level coaches it strikes me as that is a major shift uh, in that's been happening over the last 10 to 15 years is a much greater focus on the adaptation part rather than on the loading part. I think if you look at the type of training, the type of training hasn't changed all that much. And the things that people are debating is pretty much the same. But this, this very keen focus on adaptation and actually getting the athlete's body to change and absorb the training, that strikes me as something that's relatively um, new. And by new, it's new to me because I had this break and then I came back. And so I'm, I'm listening and, and looking at people and it's like, okay, well, some of the stuff we've just been debating over time with different names, but there is some stuff that's actually new. And I think that is something that's that's new. And I think it's a positive development. When I look at how fast the athletes are going, the men and the women, and I think about this adaptation, that goes a long way to explaining uh, the performance differences because the, the key sessions are similar. The amount of work is still very high, but this focus on adaptation, people seem to be getting more out of the work that they're doing. Yeah, I'll let, um, um, I, I know Jesse had some questions, but that was actually the, the next thing that I really wanted to touch. And I know he had some questions within this is that you've had a lot of different transitions in your life and in your training and athletic career from investment banker, like you said, you came in it from a endurance background into professional racing and athlete and the approach that, you know, you had Molina's approach. And then I watched you even go from Molina's approach once the volume and that approach was maxed out into Dave Scott's approach a bit more, which was a bit more structured and a little bit higher intensity. The volume wasn't a lot less, but it was, it was a, a little bit less and the structure was a lot more. And then transitioning into when you started having a family completely I remember there was a heavy emphasis on taking away the element of competition and focused more on health and life yeah. and, and what, you know, that entailed, although still a lot of activity in your life. It's not like you were never the type of person. I mean, your regular, just staying active lifestyle is still more training than most human beings. Uh, the level of swim squads that you go to, the amount of hiking, mountain passes, those kinds of things, weightlifting, 
and then now coming back in your approach, I'd like to hear, um, we've got some, you know, the intricate transitions, like each one of those, there must be very pivotal transitions on each one of those and thought patterns and things that you've noticed. Yeah. So Scott and I were a very good fit. So the, the Scott Molina approach, which is a high volume strength and endurance approach. If you have my physiology and my constitution, it works great. Cause I had come from a mountaineering background and I'd gotten into ultra, you know, if I say ultra running, you're gonna think I'm moving faster than I was. It was almost like ultra hiking. It was like jogging, it was very long days. So when I came to the sport, I was I was expecting to be about 13 hours for an Ironman and I had complete confidence in my ability to move for 13 hours because I had done it before in the mountains and stuff. Didn't know how to swim, no, didn't have a TT bike and had never really done any fast running, but I knew I could kind of stay out a long time. So Scott's approach, which is a volume driven approach really worked for me. And before I ran into Scott, I was using the triathletes training Bible, Joe Friel's approach. Um, and, and Joe's approach, actually, the, the way I interpreted Joe's approach with the breakthrough workouts and, and, the, and some of the more higher intensity stuff, it didn't work for me. Um, and, and I think the reason it didn't work for me was because I had, it's a common problem. It's still an issue a lot of people have today. I had my zone set too high. So when I tried to apply this approach that I had read in the books, um, I was doing it too intensely and I didn't have the capacity to absorb the intensity. So come to Molina, Molina's more a volume and strength approach worked great for me because it, it fit my physiology. And then Scott would challenge me not by trying to go really fast, but he would challenge me by trying to lift my ability to push Watts on the flat, particularly on the bike. Because coming from the running background, as long as I was going uphill on the bike, I was good. I could get my heart rate up. But on the flat, I could never, you know, I really struggled to get my heart rate up at all. So I had this big gap. I wasn't particularly strong on the bike. And so that is, you know, what is that? I mean, we just call that straight up base training. And it was a lot. We would do big weeks, week in, week out. I was changing hemispheres and I was just doing massive amounts of base training for Oh, geez. Uh, four years. Uh, and it worked great. I, the the base training and the Scott's approach, I just got quicker and quicker. And I had this constitution where I could do a tremendous amount. Can you, can you be more specific when you say big and tremendous, just to give people some context to what that means in, in your mind? Because to someone... 125 hours a month, 10 months a year. Sorry, say that again. 125 hours a month, 10 months a year. Right. And and the and the and the two months, the two months that I wasn't doing that kind of volume, they'd be the month after an Ironman say. So it's it's a it's a five-month cycle building towards an Ironman a month off. And that that would be the typical year. Now I didn't do that every year. Maybe every third year I would do a just do one Ironman build. And and so it was, so maybe it was. Well, and I went a little crazy with Ironmans before I ran into Scott. I think I did five in a 16-month period or something. And then and then we focused more on trying to, what I found was if I focused more on just two events a year, 
I would perform better. I would do other races, but the other races were really more like uh, intense training. Um, and then that would take the pressure off trying to do a lot of intense stuff in training. I would just do a race and then go back to my base training. And that, again, that worked well for me because mentally it took back then, it took me a tremendous amount of mental mojo to go fast. I wasn't used to going fast. I'd come from a, like a, a corporate background, not an athletic background. So I didn't have the race experience. And I, I didn't, I mean, I honestly didn't even know how to go fast. It would just start to hurt and I'd freak out and slow down. I was like, wow, this, you know, it's really not fun. And so Scott worked with me for years, building up my mental tolerance to tap into. So I had a big mental limiter in terms of my racing. And he worked with me for years, just, you know, 800 shorter intervals, just getting my mind used to how it feels to go fast. And he's all, he was always surprised by how tapped I'd get from my fast training. Scott's background, racing from a young age, swim kid, um, tremendous racer. So he just accepts that that's the way racing feels. My kids are the same way. They've raced from a long from a, from a very young age, like summer swim league when they were little. And it's a skill It's a, and it's a mental skill, that ability to go fast. I didn't have it. I needed to develop it. And it took many years uh, to develop that. So the volume, the volume was, I mean, you know, it's kind of off the charts, but it's, it's not, I mean, it's not that big compared to what the, you know, when I listen to the, you know, the Norwegians get a lot of press right now. And they're describing their weeks and their weeks sound pretty similar to, to what we were doing. And then, you know, <laughs> the most impressive is Cam Brown and he just kept doing it forever. So from, from like 15 to 50, he's got 35 years of, of that kind of volume. That's pretty impressive. Um, but I, but I think the work and that's I, the work's a given Today, in the past, 40 years ago, I mean, that that amount of work is a given. That's what it's going to take to get decent. I think what is, um, I, well, I think what's radical today is a willingness to absorb the work. So what we lacked 20 years ago was a willingness to absorb the work. We were not willing to back off because we felt that that would be giving an advantage to somebody that was doing the same work as us. So it was all, I call it now, I call it load maxing. So it's, it's you got to get up, you got to figure out what the maximum load that you can handle is. You got to get up there and you got to stay there. Now, this transition from Scott to working, well, one Scott to another, Scott Molina to Dave Scott. So I, I roll in, I've, I've ridden, I've done the swim bike run across America's base training. And I did that over about nine weeks and I roll into Boulder and Scott says, it's part of my development because sometimes you need a new coach to tell you the same thing that your existing coach is telling you. This is Scott told me this afterwards. He's like, look, you're not listening to me. Go to Dave. Um, maybe he'll be able to get through to you. And Dave's approach is, yeah, the volume's all good, Gordo, but we already know you can do that. We need to get you ready to race. And so that was what Dave's about. Dave was all about the specific demands of winning an Ironman. And that is a very different race than an individual time trial to podium an Ironman. And, and this is, and this is, and that's something that Dave brought to me is this elite 
mindset to win. So you need the physiology and you need a toolbox so that you have all the tools so you can get out there and win your race. And this is something that I hear repeated a lot now, um, you know, because that ITU racing, well, it's not really ITU, it's not even called ITU anymore, but this, this high level Olympic distance racing is very, very competitive. And the specific preparation is really down to your individual physiology and the individual course. And Dave was kind of ahead of the game on this. And he would think about the dynamic of the race and he would train me to be ready for the dynamic of the race. And he always hammered that home to me. I'd, I'd like, Dave, I want to go do this seven hour ride. And he's like, you, no, you're not going to do a seven hour ride. It's We already know you can do that. We got to get you ready for this event. And, you know, you feel prepare. like that's very specifically like what the Norwegians are hammering home now and they and a lot of their what you hear them saying it's like what you're saying it's not new they're doing the volume and then the other piece of it is they're being very specific about preparing their athletes for racing they've just brought more science into it to mm. be very very specific but essentially you're saying like everyone is focused on how new this philosophy is right now however you're you're really outlining it's it's been something that you've even been through before, you know, yeah. very and, with it. and, and, you know, if you think back to the Athens Olympics and how the Kiwis approached the Athens Olympics, I was exposed to their approach and they were, they were training for a course and they were training for a race dynamic. And so this goes, the smart coaches have figured it out. It's been going on. I think, I think what's, what's changing now is the level of the competition as well as the level of the athletes um, there's, there's many more extremely fast athletes out there. So the field depth is, is much bigger. I mean, it, and you see that at all the different levels. And I, you know, I think back to when I was racing and that transition was starting, it was going from Olympic distance to the 70.3 distance. And it took a few years and all of a sudden, you know, if, it used to be you go sub four, you're pretty much guaranteed to win most races. And then we, we'd we say to each other, wow, it's like, I'm going really fast <laughs> and I'm 13th. And it's like, we noticed, we noticed that it's like the whole field just, just shifted. And so, you know, me, I was like, well, I got to focus on Ironman. It's just too fast. And then what happened was those athletes came up to Ironman as you'd expect and they changed the sport and then it, it, everybody had to lift their game. And so that was, that was an interesting thing. So the Dave, so here's, here's something about specific preparation and, and the Dave Scott approach, this whole training to race, you really need a guardian angel and you need a guardian angel watching you when you start doing that kind of training, that, that intensive specific race training, your margin for error is really narrow. And if you don't have someone that's watching you very closely, you will, a highly motivated athlete will definitely tip themselves over the edge almost every time. So Dave's, Dave's plan, when Dave coached me and Dave watched me five days a week, I'd see the guy. Um, Monday to Friday, I'd see him every day at the pool, or we'd be lifting weights, he'd be checking in with me, that informal, just how you doing. And, and it's more than that. It's really, he's just looking at me and he's he's checking me out. 
worked great. He got me through. We we had some close calls. You know, you had little niggles and stuff, but we managed through it together. It was real one-on-one coaching. Worked great. I went away. I was in New Zealand that winter, and I was using the workouts as part of my specific preparation for Ironman New Zealand. Didn't work. I didn't have somebody looking over my shoulder. And so they didn't see those little signs when you're starting to tip over. And I can remember 10 days out from Ironman New Zealand, at the end of a run, I was just lying under a tree, completely gone. And I was just wrecked. And I had used the training, but I had used it too much because I was self-coached. And it's something the self-coached athlete listening to this needs to be aware of. You need to put in guardrails so that you don't, a passionate athlete doesn't wreck themselves, tip themselves over the edge. And that's, you know, some of these readiness metrics and things like that, they they might not be perfect, but if they can keep you from tipping yourself over the edge, they can be incredibly useful. Now I went out and I had a great race, but I had a great race, not because of my training. I had a great race because I was really fit and I was at the top of my, my game, um, but I didn't have my best race, but nobody really noticed that other than me. And, um, and, I, and then after that, I had a big down uh, tip because I'd taken myself too tired. I had to do a big recovery uh, block after that. So that's something to bear in mind. Then let's talk about another transition. So the other transition, so that's, so now we're talking about the general preparation, the specific prep kind of approach and gave you a few ideas there. There will be times in your life when you got to just step back from competition and step back from racing, or you have other goals and the goals in your life don't fit with race goals. And that's what I saw in my early 40s. So I transitioned away from elite racing and I was doing the age group racing in the 40 to 44. And it was a lot of fun. And it was a it was a great way for me to step down a notch. I was still training seriously, but I wasn't training as seriously. And uh, it was a lot of fun uh, getting ready for and you know we were working together. Marilyn and me, and we were doing the camps, and it just really fit with my life at the time. And then I've I've talked a lot with um, even psychologists and stuff with elite, and we do this with elite horses. That transition from elite performance, like you take a Grand Prix horse and you have to step them down, actually, for mental health. That transition isn't talked about enough how important that is for athletes to, to go from, you know, you just described, you spent let's say the better part of a decade learning how to be an extreme competitive athlete. If you yeah. take that and just throw them off a cliff into a field, the, there's a lot of mental health issues. And you see, that's when you see athletes really struggling for a number of years before they find their feet. So that piece that you just said actually is a real gold nugget for people to hear. You trained yourself to think like an elite athlete, which was different. You had to learn that. And then you went from there to understanding, knowing that the transition needed to be a progression step down that was still, like you said, still competitive, still a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun. So you didn't just go from here, you know, high, high level to, well, now I'm just going to be off the sport and a a full-time dad. And I think with a lot of uh, the conversations with mental health and athletes and that, that's an important, that's just a real gold nugget there you said that would be easily missed. Yeah. And it's, and, and, and that on a smaller scale is something that my wife brought to me as well as 
Dr. Jeff Schilt, who's one of my medical mentors and a buddy of mine, he used to tell, you know, I'd be telling him, I was just like, dude, I'm so bummed. And he's like, well, of course you're bummed. You've, you've, you took your training to zero after this race and you've completely shifted your neurochemistry from all this exercise that you were doing in the months building up to it. And then you just dropped it. So a change I made to cope with this post-race depression that I used to have to deal with was not to drop it all the way, to keep a certain amount of exercise going so that I could keep my neurochemistry much more stable. And I didn't have these big dips when I would kind of come off my builds and come off my races. And it's something that I said to my uh, athletes that were using endurance training to manage anxiety and other issues that they have in their life is at some point you have to realize that maybe this race, an Ironman or an ultra might not be in your best interest. You might be better off just to do some shorter events if you want to do an event so that you can keep training because it's the training that's adding the value to your life, not the racing. So that realization, when I stepped away from competition. So the next big transition is I thought I was stepping away for one year. That's what, that's what I thought when I made the change. I was like, you know what? It's getting a bit difficult to fit in these races. I'm just going to take a year off. Now that one year off is 10 years and counting. Cause I don't think, although I'm training, I haven't actually done a race yet. So <laughs> it was, you. but you know, another thing I say is if you think you should take a break, you should probably just stop. You know, when you get that kind of idea, it's like, well, maybe this isn't too good for me. Maybe I'll just take a month off. Well, if it's something that you got to take a month off, maybe you should just stop doing it. So I end up taking this long break. And in the long break, I got to deal with this, you know, the identity shift that you talked about, Marilyn. You know, I mean, I'm not a horse, but I'm kind of like that. I, I, I get it. The, um, you know, it's like, well, who, who am I if I'm not this elite athlete anymore out training everybody? And so I needed to bring in other things. So who am I? I'm a, I'm, I'm a dad. So I'd spend time with my kids. Who am I? Well, I, I experimented with getting into some powerlifting again. I became a really good skier. And that's another thing that people can use to help them with the transition is to find something that something else that fits your life that you can actually get good at. And I think a lot of athletes do that. They move sideways. Uh, so it's, it's they move to an, a different endurance sport. So I tried some long distance mountain bike racing, which was fun um, because you get to rest at the end on the downhills as opposed to having to run a marathon in an Ironman. So that was, that was a pleasant change. And then, uh, and then, and then I eventually just left it all. I was like, you know, what? I'll just take a break. And, uh, and that was a big transition. And then, in, and then the pandemic hit and I, I couldn't go anywhere. So I was just lifting weights like crazy. I had two years where it was, I mean, I, I, it wasn't a CrossFit thing. It was just me chucking sandbags around in my basement, but I, I trained very similar to say a CrossFit athlete, uh, not a whole lot of cardio for the pandemic. And it worked great. It gave me really good all over body strength. But what I didn't realize was my metabolic health. And that's something that I think many endurance athletes kind of take for granted is that metabolically we are different than most everybody else uh, in the world. We have this tremendous metabolic health from all the exercise, the endurance exercise we do, the low intensity exercise. 
And as it slowly disappeared on me, I didn't notice. I just noticed that I was getting really tired when I was hiking with my son or with my wife. And I didn't didn't know why, you know, I was kind of like, well, maybe I'm just getting old or something. And then I wasn't enjoying it as much. And so that's been the big shift with bringing back the swim, bike, run, endurance training is it took me six months for my metabolic health to start improving. And then as it improved, everything improved. And by that, I mean, my mood improved, my just the way I feel day to day improved and, and it came back to me. So the, the metabolic health component is really important, I think. Yeah, I, I think it's through, a, yeah. I went through something really similar is that, you know, when I stopped racing, I knew I, I needed, you know, similar things you're saying, you need to keep us uh, uh, goals, a similar routine and pattern. You recognize these things for mental health when you're different as a, as an elite athlete for an extended period of time. So you place these tools into your new life. And I went into, you know, first CrossFit and then um, Olympic lifting and then powerlifting. And I had the, the same realization after four years of no endurance exercise whatsoever. Like if I did, you know, 20 minutes of cardio, that was uh, now called it cardio, you know, and my, my mood, my life, my perspective on things was completely different. And I, I, it was a really clear moment where I was on one was I was on a girl's trip where we were all hiking in Moab and I couldn't go with them. And another was I was visiting a friend in Boulder and I was sleeping in the spare in the bedroom and I heard her clip in and take off for a bike ride. And I realized I couldn't go with her. And those two moments I was, I made a promise to myself, I would never, ever get so far away from what, you know, endurance activity that I couldn't have that in my life. And, and so almost What's interesting is we had a similar background in, you know, those stages of our lives with competing, but then the transition is really, really similar. And I'm really interested to hear what your, your transition coming back, because I came back to it probably two, three years ago now and, and noticing a lot of, you know, a lot of, I don't race very much at all. I I hardly race at all, but I still train, you know, 16 to 20 hours a week. So, yeah, yeah, but sorry, just interesting that almost verbatim the exact same things that you noticed, I noticed. Well, so the the key thing I noticed in the in, in coming back, you know, I feel very fortunate that I have the technical skills to analyze intensity. And what do I mean by that? It was so I'd been training for uh, a couple months and. Let's see, May, June. Yeah, I've been training. I've been I've been training for about 10 weeks coming back. And I was like, you know what? There's a really big disconnect between the heart rate that I'm training at, which was what I thought a, a low heart rate, because it was lower than my elite heart rates and my heart rates as a 40-year-old, and and the amount of fatigue I'm feeling. And I had been through something similar because I took a I took a winter off when our first kid was born. And this is back when I had a physiology lab in my basement and I had Alan Cousins test me. And he's just and he's like, well, I know you think it feels easy and I know you think your heart rate is low. But in reality, your lactate's through the roof uh, for whatever reason. And you're really inefficient right now. And so I'd been through that prior 
um, you know, about 12 years earlier when I came back after a, a winter off with our first kid being born. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to have a look. And I just have a look at these lactates that I'm producing at these low heart rates. And I was producing a lot of lactate. Now, not surprising. You do a bunch of CrossFit, you're going to get your body used to generating, you know, you're throwing sandbags around and you're going to get your body used to generating a lot of lactate. And you're going to actually have mentally a tolerance for really intense training. So you can, you can, you can have, because your work sets are relatively short, you can, and by short, a short work set for an Ironman athlete might be 20 minutes, by the way. So you, you can, you can tolerate these high lactates for 15 to 20 minutes, and you, you won't necessarily get a massive heart rate response because you, you, you're still kind of fit. And so then you, you back it off. And you're now you're just doing tempo all the time, but you're doing tempo all the time and your heart rate is 120, 125 beats. And but physiology, metabolically, you're doing tempo all the time. And this is what I didn't realize. So although I had been active before I returned to swim, bike, run training, all my training was tempo. And my training that actually felt hard was actually like zone four, zone five training. It was, it, it was, it was really hard training if it felt hard, but I didn't have any easy training, no easy, nothing that was metabolically easy or metabolically steady. It was just gone. And I think that's a trap many aging athletes can fall into is that they're doing lower volume and they're just doing everything kind of uh, tempo. And so their mitochondria get detrained and they become metabolically unfit. That's what I was feeling. I was feeling my lack of metabolic fitness. Now the solution when I was 40 years old was the same as the solution when I was 40, 53 years old, which was a whole bunch of easy training. You take the pressure off yourself and it's like, hey, just do a bunch of easy training. Now I didn't have the ability to run easy. So I had to just use the bike and I had to come back on the bike and do a ton of low heart rate training. And by low, I mean, it's pretty low. It's like, you know, under 120 beats uh, a minute. Better if I'm hanging out at about 115 beats a minute and just do that day in, day out, week in, week out. And you'll, and I built that metabolic health. And for months, nothing really seemed like it was happening to me. But then all of a sudden, after about six months, it's sort of like my cells woke up and I, and I started seeing pretty good gains on a month-by-month -month basis, December, January, and February. But I had to be uh, patient with that. And if I'm not patient, well, I know what happens. I start getting tired again. And, and the fatigue is not being old. The fatigue is just a lack of metabolic fitness. And, and that's been an interesting um, thing an interesting part of the return. And this is the same issue though, that we had say 20 years ago when we were working with athletes. First thing you got to do is give them the confidence to slow down so that they can develop themselves aerobically as opposed to this constant pressure that athletes put on themselves to go fast and to try and progress the velocity of their endurance training. Just do the endurance training as endurance training and then do the fast stuff as the, the fast stuff, separate the two and know what you're trying to achieve. One of the first things you, you said to me when I first started coaching was you're going to spend 90% of your time getting people to go slower um, and holding them back. And I, I've always, I've always kept that right there in my brain when coaching people, there's little things that 
you know, you or Scott said to me when I first started out as a, as a young coach that I just sort of keep as those bread and butter staples. And that was one of them. You said, you know, you're going to spend 90% of your time holding people back and, and protecting them from themselves. So it's good to hear that that still stands, stands true. Jesse, sorry, you go ahead there. No, no worries. Um, can you quantify what you mean by a ton of, of easy work? Like, you know, at 53, what does that look like for you now? So, yeah, uh, you know, I've, so I've found, well, okay. So a little bit about my background. I do have a tendency to do too much. And <laughs> uh, so that's my issue. My, my issue is I'll overtrain myself if I don't put guardrails in. And so let's chat a bit about the guardrails. And then I'm going to tell you exactly the volume. Cause that's the other thing I'm documenting this return because I'm putting a lot of effort into making sure that I, I, what I can, what I say I do is what I'm actually doing because it's um, it's well, one, it's motivating to me, but also I have some things that I believe that I would like to see if my beliefs are true, like test my hypothesis on this. So um, a lot of easy training for me is so my total volume is about 14 to 15 hours a week. And that's, that's kind of like every week. And then within the week, I have two easy days that I take in a row. And I usually have one other easy day. So if you think about it, it, so there's like five days that are training days, two really easy days. And in those five days that are training days, there's going to be an easy day, usually in the middle of it, say day three, I'm going to back off. So it's like two days on, easy day, two days on, two easy days. And the purpose there is to prevent myself to, from overdoing it when things are going well. That's that's when I usually give myself too much. So my, my metrics are, are flashing green. My soreness isn't there. The feeling's good. My morning heart rate's under control. Everything's Everything's going fine. And I just keep loading. And the chronic fatigue slips in very slowly. And and it slips in so slowly that you think your baseline is good, but your baseline's actually going down on you. But you can't see it because it all happens so slowly. So that's that's sort of about what I'm doing now in terms of how much easy training. I I would say it's ninety percent of my bike training is under LT one, and by that I mean under aerobic threshold. And it would be easy, steady, green zone training. When people talk about zone two, it's difficult. Zone two does not mean the same thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I prefer just to say that it's like lactate threshold one or aerobic threshold. It's, it's like that baseline type effort. And so it, it is metabolically easy for me. That's really what I'm talking about. And, and I'm bike focused on that. Now, one of the issues for a triathlete is uh, many triathletes lack the ability to run easy. They don't, it, it's just not there. Anytime they're running, it's going to be challenging for them. And it'll be challenging one of two ways. It'll be challenging from the impact. So the, the peripherally, they're just going to get beat up because their legs aren't used to run volume. They aren't used to the ground reaction forces. So there's no such thing as easy running for somebody uh, a lot of people. And I'd put myself, if I'm running on concrete, it's really beating me up. I mean, after a 10 year break, it's 
challenging at any speed, my whole body. Then there's another issue that many folks have, which would be metabolically challenging. So the muscles are relatively inefficient, the lactate's going up, and the body doesn't have the ability to use that lactate for fuel. So that's another way so that if we look centrally at the athlete, we look at them metabolically, their easy pace or even their steady pace looks more like a tempo type workout for them in terms of what's happening, the internal stress. And this is separate from the speed and it's separate from whatever the heart rate's telling us. If we look at what's happening inside that athlete. Now, let's go into the pool now. Now in the pool, it's even more. We don't have the impact, but the metabolic stress for most everybody in the pool is actually really high. They're panting down the lane. They're feeling all stressed out. They're just not used to being in the water. So if you're dealing with somebody, if you're thinking about, well, what, you know, a swim, bike, run program, the run and the swim portions of that program are going to be quite stressful for most athletes. It takes a lot of volume to actually get them to the point where they can relax with internal stress and external stress on swim, bike, and run, on their entire program. So that means that to get them the endurance training, this green zone training, it nearly all has to happen on the bike or hiking, or you have to do uh, a really mellow run walking to keep the metabolic load down on, on that athlete. And so that's what I that's what I would mean. And, and by almost, uh, you know, it's like, I, you know, I was 80, 20 was all the rage last year. So I was trying to do like 80, 20, but I found even 20% was too much for me. I was like doing 90, 10. And by 10, my 10% was not hard. It was not intense. My 10% was just like a little bit of tempo, maybe a bit of climbing. And so uh, it was almost everything was just doing green zone training and it worked great for me. The other thing I found was that coming from my strength background, um, I was so weak metabolically. I took a break from my strength training last year uh, because my my relative my strength relative to my aerobic fitness was I was completely mismatched, and so that is something that's kind of weird for someone over fifty to have that kind of mismatch. Yeah, Marilyn's got it too. So I, I just had to. I just I was like, you know what? I'm just going to shelve the strength training for a few months. And then I got into the gym in December and, and did a, just a couple sets of leg squats and it made me really sore. And I realized, hold on a sec, you know, like all things, I went too far one direction. I got to bring some back. And so then I was like, all right, I don't need to, I don't need to smash myself for an hour in the gym, but definitely 20 to 30 minutes is going to help me long-term. But it's also, if I'm, if I'm generating that much soreness, there's really, there's, it's a sign that I should keep a bit of it in my program. I, I let soreness be my guide with a lot of different things, run volume, uh, strength training. It's, it's a good indicator of, of something that might be useful, but also when I've gone a little bit too far, if I get really sore. To add to that, Gorda, what I found, because we come from a such a similar background with that is I actually, I go to the gym because strength is so different than endurance and all the things that you're talking about. You hang on to strength for a long, long time. And uh, so I go once a week. I go once a week. I do three exercises. I do uh, deadlifts, five sets of five. And I'm same as you. I'm much stronger than most 45 year old endurance athletes. I can still deadlift 220 pounds. That's yeah. a lot of weight for 135 pound female. Um, yeah. and then I do a, you know, some postural pulling exercises, seated rows, glute ham, 
raises and some core and I get out of there. I'm in there for maybe 30 minutes, real specific. And it keeps, you know, keeps everything really, really strong, but it doesn't beat me up or make me nervous system wise too tired in any way. So I, I, I try and really encourage endurance athletes who are going to the gym, you know, three times a week and doing an hour's worth of gym, that that's not necessarily the type of load and fatigue that is going to be beneficial across their whole swim, bike and run program. If we go once a week and we were strong and we focus on three or four key exercises, convincing them that that's enough is I still haven't been able to really convince too many people. They're just, they just don't believe me. And, and I try and tell them being an endurance athlete, well, being an athlete since I was nine, but endurance athlete since 99, and then being a pure strength athlete and in merged in the strength world for, you know, pretty much it's been almost 10 years now marrying those two. I feel like I found what that balance should look like, but convincing the general masses and in the endurance world that that actually works has been just something I feel like I've been beating my head against the wall with, but maybe eventually. <laughs> it's a message you need to keep saying. And, and it's, I, I took that lesson from you at Tucson one year when you did the presentation, your presentation was titled Strong for What? And, and, and that is spend some time thinking about what you want to be strong for. I always thought that that was a great thing that you brought. And it's a good, it's a message to hear. Are you just going into the gym to, I don't know, make yourself tired? Or, or are you, I mean, like, what are you trying to achieve? Because I tell you, if I was doing three... If I was doing three by one hour a week, that that done right with a low endurance load, you can get yourself pretty jacked from that. I mean, I, I was like, I'm I'm over I'm over fifty, and I had great results yeah. from from that. But it but it kind of killed my endurance. But it was but if you if you want to put some muscle on, look good, look great in street clothes. I mean. It, <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's your goal. yeah i guess yeah 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 i mean it's that's the nice thing about strength training you get you get a huge bang for your buck yeah. i mean if, if you're like i want to be an endurance athlete but i got three hours a week it's like well good luck amigo i mean it ain't gonna happen but you know as a as a as a power athlete you can get a lot done in three hours yeah yeah a week yeah so yeah um, Jesse, I, I've sort of taken over a lot of the questions. I know you had a few key questions before. I have one really big one at the end that I want to ask, oh, you, but, I, but I know that uh, Jesse had a couple smaller ones that will uh, let him speak up here. Awesome. Well, I guess just kind of piggybacking off of one thing you said, you said that you kind of let soreness be your guide for your training right now. So are you on like a, a set schedule in and that like, are you writing yourself workouts or are you kind of seeing how you feel each day? And then, yeah. How does, how does that kind of play uh, out as far as how your yeah. workouts are laid out? Now that is a big change. There you go. That, that's, that's a great question. So I, I used to be able to tell you exactly what I was going to be doing next Thursday. Like if you asked me right now, I'd have an idea what I was going to be doing next Thursday. Uh, I, I was very meticulous with my planning and uh, I would stick to my plan. Um, something with this focus on adaptation, I found it's a lot more useful to be flexible. So when I wake up in the morning, I know I'm gonna do, if I'm in my five-day microcycle, I know I'm gonna do something, but I don't necessarily know what that something's gonna, what that something's gonna be. So I, 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 I have 
I want to hit my frequency goals. And by that, I mean, I want to get, you know, my three swims and my three runs every week. And then the cycling, I'm a lot more flexible with, but my cycling frequency will be four or five rides a week. Um, and that's just because of its importance for my metabolic training, which is a, a key, which is, you know, really what I'm lacking uh, right now. But in terms of workouts, it's a lot of endurance training. And right now it's not a lot of main sets. It's just a lot of just sitting there kind of in, in that easy to steady uh, zone. And just doing, just doing work and just letting the work roll up uh, day after day. What I've been finding, again, is this fatigue mismatch in, in that I don't have yet the capacity to absorb specific training. So if we think about general capacity, which is just a, a general capacity to train and do work, and then we think about specific capacity, which would be the ability to do work is designed to make you race faster or designed for a specific event. I'm not yet at the point where I can shift to training my specific capacity. I'm still building general capacity. So I'm like a, um, well, I'm like a new athlete, really. Uh, you know, it's the same issue I had way back when I came to triathlon at the very beginning. It's that it's that my, I'm, I'm, my physiology is different, but I still lack the general capacity relative to my event. So I need to be really flexible. Now, the sort of main sets that I will add are strength oriented main sets, and that is uphill tempo or big gear on the flats in terms of if we're thinking about the type of thing. So it's real just bread and butter uh, sets. And then each week I like to do, I, I well, I do a little bit of higher intensity, but I don't make it sustained. Again, it's just a fatigue thing. If I do sustained higher intensity, I have to trade away hours of endurance training. And the endurance training is much more important to me. So if 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 I do a bunch of, I'll give you an example. A, a typical set might be uh, for somebody that was doing high intensity, they might do say, I don't know, five by three minutes, zone five, say. Well, that 15 minutes of training is probably going to cost me two or three hours of endurance training. So it's not worth it for me. It's totally not worth it for me. So instead, what I might do is some 30-30s. So I'll do 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, and maybe I'm only going to do 10 or 12 of them. So I'm going to get five to six minutes of work. I'm going to stimulate those muscle fibers. They're going to need to be recruited for me to do that work but I'm not going to get tired from that work. It's not going to have a cost for me in the week. And because all training, all training is kind of a trade-off. I want my fatigue to be generated by things that'll actually improve my general capacity right now. I'm not interested in raising the roof or improving my specific capacity. And this is a mistake I see many athletes make new athletes athletes that are trying to up the distance is it's too much focus on specific capacity when they're really limited more in a general capacity uh, sense. And then in the background, in terms of specific capacity, capacity, what I want on my running is I want to try and get my mileage up, but I have a biomechanical limiter. And so I need to be really careful with that. So Scott Molina is famous for a simple approach for elite running, which is run every day. 
That's something that he taught me. It's something I used. It worked great. So these, these uh, juniors would come to him and these under 23s, and they'd have these huge engines. They'd be like swim guys. And they'd be muscular and strong and like surf. You know, they could just party in the surf all day. Amazing 200 meter times. And they'd be like, Scott, I want to become a triathlete. What should I do? And he's like, just run easy every day. And they'd be like, can't do it, mate. It's it's just not able to do it. And Scott's like, well, you know, after you've been injured, come back to me. And that's what you got to do. And the run every day works great if you don't have the biomechanical limiter. And so when I was younger, I didn't. I came from a running background. I thought Molina was crazy when he told me I was going to run every day. I was like, I'm going to die. You know, my legs will fall apart. But they didn't because he's just like, well, just run easy. You don't have to like run hard. Just, just get out there and run. But I can't do that now because if I run every day, my body doesn't um, have any, well, my body doesn't recover fast enough on a 24-hour cycle. I need to be running on a 48-hour cycle for my body to actually recover so I don't give myself an overuse injury. And that's recovery cycles is something that an athlete, very individual, I mean, I'm the same guy, I'm just older, so I'm, I'm different in that sense. So you need to understand what your recovery cycles are. And that's where cross-training is great because I can tolerate, I can still tolerate a bunch of easy bike volume. So I can, I can be moving forward overall with my general capacity but my ability to run, I just have to be more patient with it. And it's just going to take however long it takes. Because if I rush it, I get injured. And if you're not running, well, you're not going to get better at running. And then what about in the pool? Are you doing any intensity there? Yeah, I do. Uh, I find <laughs> the swim was really surprising to me. I am. So I had to learn to swim from scratch when I was, uh, what would it be? Uh, 30 years old. So I had, I had no, no knowledge of swimming. I was awful. I mean, I, I, it took me a couple months before I could go faster than two minutes for a hundred. Um, and that was just max effort back then. So the swim, and fortunately, obviously now I know a lot about swimming. I mean, I managed to get myself through the Ultraman swim, which was the 10K open water swim. And I've done other open water swims and I did a ton of swimming because I needed to do that volume to reduce the metabolic cost of the swim on me to be able to perform well in Ironman. So it was a big focus of my elite training. So the advantage I have this time is I know how to swim. So I, I know what I want to do. And knowing how to swim is actually pretty important because it's, it's really technical. And you can waste a ton of energy. So when I came back, I was really inefficient. And I came back with this desire to do proper swim training. And I wrecked myself. Uh, I, I, I got way too tired. And it wasn't fun. And I stopped. Uh, you know, some, something happened. And I took a week off. And a week turned into a month. And I, and, I, and I lost my consistency. So to get myself back on, I announced on my Twitter feed that we were gonna play a swim game. It's something Marilyn and I used to do at Endurance Corner. And it was really just to get myself back. And my swim game was designed to get an athlete ready for a 70.3 race. So I was like, you know what? I was like jumping in, trying to train like I'm an Ironman athlete. I gotta lower my hurdles. And, the, and what we did was the idea was we would we would get to the pool three times a week 
and we would leave the pool while we were still having fun. So the first workouts were basically just what I used to do to warm up. So it was like 1500, 1500 minimum, done, get out of there, go do something else. And you build the habit of going to the pool and you enjoy every, every habit. And so the hurdle is not very big. And if I, you know, if I didn't do my own program, I was going to have to tell everybody, well, actually I didn't do my own program. Sorry. So it was, it helped me kind of get through. And then soon enough, sure enough, the, the 1500 minimum became a 2k minimum. The 2k minimum became a 3k minimum and 10 weeks in, I'm doing 4,000 workouts and enjoying them. And that, that slow ramp with a low hurdle, enjoy the process, enjoy the workout. It was that, that got me back into it. So what type of swimming did I do to get back? 50s. Uh, and why did I do 50s? I found that I could keep my technique with the 50s. And also the rest at the end would mean the metabolic load of the entire workout is coming down because I didn't have the ability, like a lot of people that have taken a break from swimming or are learning to swim, I can't recover while I'm swimming. So I have to recover on the wall, which means I gotta do these shorter intervals with good technique, relax my breathing, and just let the fitness come while I'm doing these easy workouts. So it's kind of, back when I started, there was a guy that had a program called Total Immersion, and that was really what he used to do. It's like the fitness is going to come while you're learning how to swim. And so I brought that back. And it was months before I actually turned up at Masters. And Masters was just the same. So what, what is Masters? Masters is gasping and fading. Almost everybody that's in, uh, in the pool is gasping and fading. The exception is the people that are actually in the right lane. And what's the right lane? The right lane is a lane that you can lead for the entire workout. That's the right lane to be in in masters. If you can't lead it, the whole workout, go down a lane and lead that lane. And then you'll back off and you'll actually be able to get an endurance workout. Everybody else is just in zone four and five, turning purple, smashing themselves. It's just the same. Now, that said, you can use these workouts with intent because if I turn up at Simon Lessing's masters, and blitz myself for 5K on a Saturday morning, it doesn't matter what I do the rest of the week. All I got to do is touch the water, do, do some pull sets, maybe a little medley set if I'm feeling good. And I know that my entire week is all set just from that one hard workout. But if that's all I did was master swimming, I'm not going to get the aerobic development that I need for my goals. So right now, I don't have the fitness to do a ton of master swimming. And so I do a little bit when I want a hard workout and the rest of the time I just do endurance and strength. And so it's, it's a lot of descending aerobic sets um, where I just try and get the distance, touch the water a lot and track my weekly volume and then enjoy it. And then just wait for the swimming in, the, in Boulder in the summer is great. We got open water options, we got long course and I'm just gonna let the volume come up naturally across the summer. I think the really um, key thing for people to take away from that, and you're saying with coming back is one, setting some hard rules for yourself. Like I need to swim three times a week. I've done the same. I, for me, it's only twice a week. As long as I swim twice a week. <laughs> and then 
giving yourself an accountability that is fun for you. For me, it's I meet this one girlfriend of mine that it's our social time. It's the time we get to see each other. And so I meet her at the pool. I don't care what the workout is. As long as I know I show up and I swim with Lauren, I'm going to have a nice visit with a friend. We're going to have a great time. And I get a pretty good swim in. It doesn't really matter what the workout is. I'm just there with her. So as long as I meet her maybe once a week, hopefully twice a week, and get in the pool one other time and swim, like like you're saying, just it feels low stress and easy. It's my time away from the phone or where anyone can reach me. I've gotten in what I need that week. And and so I think the 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 similarity in both of that, again, the the approach is that there's an accountability that seems fun and and low stress, but there's some hard line based rules that you've set for yourself to keep that consistency. And I think if people can take those two things away from that lesson, then then they can apply it to their own world and and be pretty successful over. Again, the other part you're saying is over this whole conversation, every timeline you describe is over long periods of time, six months, two years, four years. So having that understanding that any one of these transitions and approaches and things that you you dive into, the most common theme is you have a really good perception of the long game yeah. and understanding of what it's going to take. And, and that actually leads me right into the final question that I had for you, which is one of the things I've always admired about you and the reason I always um, have grasped on to you as a mentor in so many areas of my life is that all areas of your life ever since you've been very young are, are very successful. Now, whether that be business when you're in uh, investment banking and, and um, when you decided to become a professional athlete, you became successful. You, know, you won races, you were, you won a world championships. Um, when you decided to, you know, you've written going, going long with Joel Friel, when you decided to, uh, develop endurance corner that became successful and everyone that you brought into the family of endurance corner you gave us a platform to be successful and so and then your transition with your family is successful and now coming back is successful so the common theme is there must the, the result is the end result is always the same you're very successful what i really want to hear you pinpoint for people to hear and even I would love to hear and and even be reminded as a friend of yours is is there is there like a list of very specific things that you consciously know and do that that create that same structure every time that outcome is always the same or is it just I mean nobody's that successful and it happens off a whim you know I I, I don't think so, so well there's a book called Fooled by Randomness and there there probably is somebody that could probably score pretty well just from randomness at, at things, you know, like, you know what I mean? Cause we never, yeah, we, we never, we never hear about the poor guy that like blew out and, and it just didn't work for him. He just but, disappeared one day. Yeah. It's like, he's gone. You know, like whatever happened to Barney? It's like, he's, I never see that guy anymore, but the, okay. There is, there is, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what it, uh, there are some things that I apply. So first is you need, well, you need you need people to give you the basics. So I've been very fortunate to have teachers, coaches, peers, colleagues, athletes, clients that are very good. And what I mean by that is they they notice stuff and they want to improve and I pay attention to it. 
Okay. So if, if I could say that the one trait that I have that is really useful to me is I have the ability to take someone, the best idea uh, someone has that I meet and I can apply it. And so a lot of folks, I think actually we all have great ideas, but a lot of our great ideas, we don't necessarily have the capacity to apply our best ideas. And there's, so there's, there's the idea side and then the application side. So what I do is, you know, I, I notice and I learn from people. I was like, wow, that, that's, that's a good idea. I'm going to try and do, I'm going to try and do that. Now, related to that, I think many of us, many people want to be successful, but they want to be successful in too many dimensions. So if you notice what I did as, as I talk through my background, I'm really talking through one single dimension of my life. And that is the dimension that I'm focusing on. And I'm not making progress on the other parts of my life. So we need to make a choice on what are, and I call it my one thing. What's my one thing? And now I got more than one thing, but I have what's called a closed to-do list. My to-do list never consists of more than three things I'm trying to do at one time. And, and I got that from a book uh, called Time Management for Mortals. And it's really, you have something called a closed to-do list, which is what you're going to be working on every day. And then you have an open to-do list, which is actually a notebook that I have on my desk. And, and everything else just goes in the notebook. And honestly, you're just going to forget about it. You're not going to deal with it. You're only going to deal with what's on your cl closed to-do list. And that's what you're going to work on. Now, how are you going to work on these things? Well, you need to have faith that time is your ally. And if you're an endurance athlete and you stick with it, you're going to see that. And sport is a great way, particularly endurance sport, to prove that to yourself. That if you can do the process and if you can do the work, you will improve over time. Now, what my background is finance. I'm professionally trained in the value of financial compounding. I've been working in it for many years. Honestly, I still don't believe it. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not something I believe inside my body. Athletic compounding, I've really lived, so I kind of believe it, but I still, on the day-to-day, -day, you know, I'm, I can be a little up and down emotionally, you know, it's like, oh, I'm you know, I got a niggle, I'm never getting better. And then the next day, you know, Monica, my wife jokes, she's like, oh, you're back on top, huh? Niggle's gone. And I was like, yeah, I'm back on top. This is going to work. I'm unstoppable. So you need to, you need to try it. You need to constantly reinforce reinforce and, and affirm in yourself that it's a long game, that compounding will work for you because compounding will work. It's just tough for us as humans to believe in it. It's easy for us to get distracted. So that ability, that long game, and then to keep myself in the game, the other thing I do is I, I put in, I call them guardrails and it's really, you need, you need some rules so you don't beat yourself. Most of us beat ourselves particularly in sport. And I had an article this week that I wrote about running and it's just like, and it was five ways we beat ourselves because that's what's really happening a lot of times in sport. It's not our competition. It's that we never really get to the race because somehow we got excited or we got distracted or over-enthusiastic or we didn't recover and we beat ourselves. So don't beat yourself. But to distill it down, to give you like the, the sound bite, the key thing, Set the hurdle low, but do it every morning. 
that would be, I think, the one of the most powerful things that, that I've used in my life. So whether I'm trying to build uh, a social media network, you know, I felt like I needed more connection in my life. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to tweet something helpful every morning. And I'm going to do that for a thousand days and see if that works for me. And, and that can be very, very powerful. Same deal. If you want to change your life fitness wise, just do something every morning, every morning before breakfast, do a 20 minute workout. And if you feel good, well, go a little longer, get that habit established and then just let the compounding work for you. I love that. Yeah, that's all. And you know, those are all lessons that I learned from just being around you all of those years. And I try and, you know, I have like little lists that I keep and I think it's a good idea to keep those, those real, like I say, those fundamentals just in view all of the time so that they're in front of your mind. And even when you, cause it's human nature to get a little sidetracked or you start to steer away from them a little bit. But if you always have that to come back to and keep applying them to every area of your life, you know, just, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, I thank you as a, as a mentor in my life for so long for teaching me that years ago. And, and I can attest that it absolutely, absolutely works. Even if it's not at quite the same level you're at, at least I'm, I'm on the same train in some regards. So very cool. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Jesse, you have any closing thoughts? I just want to thank you so much for your time, Gordo, and, and, and being with us. I know you're really busy and it's been a long time and it's just been like really, really great to, to connect this way. So I really appreciate it, Jesse. Um, you know, I, I also really appreciate you taking the time to, to be with us and, you know, giving us so many uh, little bits of wisdom here. There's about 30 other questions we had talked about beforehand, but, um, but yeah, I think we should, we should cap it there for now. We've, we've kept it for over an hour. So yeah. Like I said, I do really appreciate it. And um, can you tell us where people can find you? And I can make sure to add it in the show notes. Sure. Thousanddaypacing.com. It's just a landing page. And it's the number one, zero, 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 thousand day pacing. And it'll take you to my YouTube and my Twitter and the two sub stacks that I publish weekly. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Thank, thank you so much, Gordo. And uh, let's let's keep it less than 10 years. And when we... <laughs> <laughs> let's actually go for an easy ride. <laughs> yeah, I'd be up for that. Easy yeah. ride. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, G. All right. Thank you. All right, thanks, thank guys. You both. Bye.